Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we're coming to Christmas, right? Christmas is often full of glitter and garland and wonderful things, right? It's beautiful. We love it. Usually, if they, well, not usually, but when we're blessed with the opportunity to have a white Christmas, it's a beautiful thing. Amen? Do you guys like white Christmas? Yeah, yeah. I know Jerry does. She likes snow in July. She's got issues. <laughs> All right. So... <laughs> Love you, sister. Uh, Christmas is full of what we often think of in bright and beautiful and wonderful things. Now, that might be the picture on the surface, but the reality underneath the surface is that often Christmas is not just a time in which we celebrate wonderful, beautiful, bright things, but often times in which we struggle. We're struggling because maybe we've had our kids grow up and now they're out of the house. And now Christmas, what used to be full of time with kids running around like little banshees with all sorts of toys and all sorts of noise, now we're in silent homes where it feels like something's missing. Christmas can be a time of struggle because of the circumstances of our lives, whether that's the lack of children in our home, the lack of the loved ones around us, the lack of our financial security, the lack of maybe clarity in what's going on in the exact moment. The reality is is that many of us, whether or not we want to come to it this morning, we need to come with this realization that life is full of affliction. We go through moments of joy and we go through moments of struggle. And often our natural responses as humans is one of two things to highlight and emphasize the struggle in such a way that it's all-encompassing and life is full of bitterness. Or to respond by denying what's hurting us, pushing it to the side, and trying to find some sort of superficial sense of joy. I think what Ruth 1 tells us this morning is that in our affliction, in our struggles of life, we need to run to the Lord. That's my argument for you this morning, that in our affliction, we need to run to God. Ruth is a really interesting book in the Old Testament. It's very short. I like short books of the Bible. Do you guys like short books of the Bible? Yeah, they're, they're short and they're sweet and they usually pack some sort of good punch. Ruth is like a short story that is full of characters that we can enter into and that we can get this sense of what they're experiencing. It's full of tragedy, it's full of joy, it's full of God's provision. But really, what Ruth highlights for us in the middle of the Old Testament is a story of how God is going to be faithful to his purposes of redemption. The Bible has one large story. If you're not familiar with this, I'm going to take some time just to explain it in four different parts for you. The Bible story in four parts. So if you're taking notes this morning, I hope this is useful to you. The first is the story of creation. God creates the world. He creates everything that's within it. He creates it by speaking it into existence. And the ultimate glory of God's creation is the creation of man, of humans, male and female, in his image, in his likeness. Those that would have dominion on the earth and show his power, his might, his glory. Those that reflect his very being. 
God creates man in his image. But the second part of the Bible's story is that there is fall. That those creatures who were created in the image of God to display his glory, to display his power, to exercise his rule and authority, they rebel against him. They don't follow his word. They don't trust in his provision. And by this, what we now see is the conflict of the story of the Bible come to light. That humans, in their sin, are separated from the Almighty, the powerful, knowing God who wants to rescue and redeem us and live with us in community. And because of this brokenness, we are separated from God in such a way that we need some sort of redemption. But here's the, here's the caveat. The redemption we need is not a redemption that we can purchase on our own. Because we're humans, because we're created by the Creator, we are not able to create with the same power of the Almighty. And so we can't create an avenue in which we can grow into a right relationship with God because we are marred by sin. Sin has plagued us in such a way that it separated us from God for all eternity, and we need God himself to interact with us and come down and rescue us on our behalf. And that's where the good news of Jesus comes in. Jesus comes to rescue and redeem God's people. He comes to give us a way to be made right with God, a way that we can now relate to him in perfect community again, just like we did in creation. And that way is through the death burial, and resurrection of Christ through our repentance of sin and our faith in what Jesus has done to make us right with God. And by that, we have the long part of the story of the Bible, the the point of our longing where we look to restoration. The God who created the world, the humans who rebelled against the world, those that are now redeemed by faith and repentance in Christ are now looking forward to the end of the story where God's going to come and restore creation to its intended order. I know you guys know this fact, but it is 2022. You knew that, right? That was a high bar there. It is 2022, and we are coming and celebrating Christmas. What is Christmas about? It's not about glitter and garland, right? What is it about? The birth of Christ, right? Now, the historical accuracy, we can debate this somewhat, whether he was born exactly on December 25th or not. There could be some conversations around that. Nonetheless, the Christmas season is about celebrating that Jesus has come to be born of a man in a manger to die for us, to rescue sinners, and to make us right with God, right? Amen. That's the good news of Christmas. Why are we celebrating Christmas in 2022? Have you ever thought about this, right? Think about what we do year after year. We celebrate that Jesus came, that he was born in a manger of a virgin. We celebrate that he died for us, for our sin. And then we go on to the next year, don't we? But the birth of Christ, the the Christmas season, is not just about his first coming. It's about his second coming, that he will restore creation to its intended order. That's what we celebrate every week with Advent. Those candles that get lit on that little table over there, those families that come up and read passages of Scripture and pray 
that God would help us to worship him, what we're doing week in and week out is celebrating Advent, which literally means coming. We believe that Jesus is coming again. He's come to make a way for us, but he's not just come to make a way, he's come to restore. So Christmas, year after year, is about restoration. Ruth 1 is about affliction and restoration. I told you my main argument for you this morning is that we need to run to the Lord in our affliction. Ruth is a book of the Old Testament that's placed right before, uh, right after the book of Judges and right before the book of 1 Samuel. This, there is conversation about who wrote the book of Ruth. A lot of scholars, the most trusted resources that I have found, have pointed to the authorship of Ruth being that of the prophet Samuel, that the author of 1 Samuel, who also... It was finished by Nathan and Gad. That's a, another story. But Samuel is the author of Ruth. We're going to take that avenue. It was written to a, a group of people after the time of Judges. Okay, So let's look at Ruth 1.1. Our argument, we need to run to the Lord in affliction. My first point for you this morning is don't forsake the people of God. Don't forsake the people of God. Ruth 1.1, during the time of the Judges... There was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. This man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. We need to run to the Lord in our affliction. Don't forsake God's people. Don't forsake God's people. Notice Ruth 1.1 during the time of the judges. How many of you have Judges 21 right before Ruth 1-1 in your Bible? Okay. Look at Judges 21, verse 25. The author, within these first five verses of the book of Ruth, is telling us about what has happened over ten years of time, pointing back to the immediate pre-context to what they are facing, where he says, during the time of the Judges, there was a famine in the land. Judges 21, verse 25, says this. In those days, the days of the judges, friends, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever seemed right according to him. So in this time, what we learn from Ruth 1.1, during the time of the judges, a time where people just did whatever seemed right according to them, what happened? There was a famine in the land. It's really interesting, too, that Ruth 1.1 starts off with this man named Elimelech who's coming from this place called Bethlehem. Do you guys know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? House of bread. So Elimelech, from the city of the house of bread, is leaving because there's a famine in God's place with his people. And in light of his leaving, it tells us that he goes to this place called Moab. All right, for those of you that have been involved in Old Testament survey uh, during our education hour, is Moab uh, good people or bad people? Bad people, yep. 
In fact, they're, they're so bad that they're told in Deuteronomy 7 not to relate with these kinds of people. So I want to point, or just paint this portrait for you of Elimelech that we don't initially get just by our initial reading of the text. Okay? What the text is trying to tell us is that Elimelech was somebody who belonged to God, who was trusting in his covenantal promises. Old Testament survey people, what is the, the covenantal promise of Genesis 12? Four things. God's going to make a people, right? People. He's going to be present with them in a specific place, the promised land, and he's going to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. So, Elimelech, a covenant member of the people of God, has decided that in the light of this famine, it's time to head out of Bethlehem, the place of the house of bread where God has set up his people to dwell and be with him. Now, in light of that, we also learn about Malon and, and Kilion, who marry two Moabite women, who we've already been found out from Deuteronomy chapter 7 that they're not supposed to intermarry with. And the consequences of these actions are summarized in what we find in verse 5, that these two children, along with Elimelech the husband, die in sin. When life gets hard for us, our natural inclination is to run from what is good for us. Have you experienced this, friends? I've experienced this. When tragedy strikes, we want to run from what God has for us. We live in a time where the rule of the land is do what is right according to you. But friends, I want you to see that that kind of rule is not a good rule to live under. That's foolishness. It's not biblical wisdom. You may be coming here this morning and thinking that it would be absurd for a pastor to tell you that you should live your life in light of the Bible. You should say, hey, I just want to live with whatever makes me happy. I want to do whatever makes me feel the best. I just want to ask you humbly to observe how that's going within your own life. If you've lived for yourself for a period of time, I'm going to guess based on my circumstances that you are also like me and what that often leads with and ends in is not contentment, but discontentment, right? Because we just move on to the next thing, right? Like uh, my, my little brother, he's 16, going to be 17 in a few weeks. He really liked video games for a period of time. I'm not like... I'm not a big video game guy. I bought an Xbox to play FIFA, and everybody I tell that to, they laugh because that's one game for a video game console, and I have owned every single one since 1997. Thank you. <laughs> it's my favorite game because I love soccer, right? Um, but my little brother, he really was into like those war games like Call of Duty and all that. And so I decided that I would buy one to try to play with him. And immediately when I got into the game context, I just felt like motion sickness and like I could not comprehend what was going on. It was like utter chaos. Yet this guy, he's sitting over there, like glued to the TV, just able to do whatever this is right there. You know what was awesome about that? For like a few months, I felt like I was getting really close to my brother because we had something in common. He was totally owning me in Call of Duty. And I was joyfully getting destroyed. 
because I'm spending time with him. And I just thought like, oh man, this is great. This gives me an avenue to relate to him. I'm going to find joy in doing this. It didn't last, right? Because eventually you get really tired of like spawning to life and then getting shot and killed again, right? It's not enjoyable in the video game sense. But it also wasn't just that. It was that he grew up. He grew up and in his growing up, now he doesn't play Call of Duty. So I don't get to go on my Xbox and play with him and chat with him and hear him crack jokes about how awful I am at something and give him joyful freedom to just recognize my incapabilities in the video game world. I, I will not be a video game star. I've come to those senses. But it led to a moment where I thought, here's something that really brings him joy, and it was short-lived. Friends, when we live according to what is right to us, we do just that. We do it for just a moment. It's always changing. We grow. We get into a different stage of life. Something changes. We're not all crazy about Call of Duty. Many of you with children recognize that some of the things that your kids loved when they were young, they don't love anymore as teenagers, as young adults. But when we say, we'll just move on from the thing to the thing, what I found out is that often what that ends with is that we're just discontent. We just try to find the next thing that makes us happy. And so when you ask somebody what really brings you joy, they may have an answer for right now, but if you ask them in a week, it might change. If that's the rule of our lives, We don't actually have joy. We just have a list of things that made us happy for a moment. But joy is not just a moment. Joy goes through every moment in our lives. So don't be ruled by the rule of the land. Live according to what is right for you. And our common experience when affliction strikes is that we're tempted to disconnect from what is good to us. Specifically, as Christians, we're often tempted to disconnect from God's people. We all probably have known someone who has faced a hard time in life and felt burdened by their circumstances. Have you lived in that? You felt burdened by your circumstances. And if you're a Christian, what that often looks like then is that you know the burden of your circumstances and you think, maybe I should reach out. That comes to your mind. But how do you respond when you think, maybe I should reach out to somebody and just ask for some encouragement, for some care, and for some prayer? There's the initial response of our shame, right? We're, we're like humiliated that we're having a hard time and we don't want to ask other people for help. So what do we do? We just buckle on and we keep hoping that everything's going to just work out in its time. Does that work, friends? No, it doesn't work. Not always. Not usually. We feel like we're a burden to others, and so we don't want to reach out. And we think that maybe what we're going through, nobody else has ever gone through before. I mean, we think even in light of our church body, we may even think, well, these people are younger than me. Are they going to know exactly what I'm facing right now? I don't, I don't think they've had that kind of life experience to go what I've gone through. Or the the younger people may be saying, they don't know what it's like to be a young person right now to go through this kind of struggle. You know what the problem is in both of those ideas? We're so selfish and self-centered that we can't think that anybody else has ever suffered. You know what is the truth? We may not have the same kind of suffering, but we all have indeed suffered. I'm reminded not too long ago 
I was facing a situation like this where somebody was going through a really hard time and it just felt like I couldn't relate to them. They told me that I've never been in their shoes. They were facing a situation that was tough where they had a family member who was experiencing dementia. When I heard that, what the person didn't know at that time was just a week before, my great-grandmother passed away from dementia. And I was sitting next to her bed, praying over her, hearing her wheeze because she could not breathe, recognizing that she didn't even know who I was. She had no idea that it was me, her grandson. I had spent time with her. That I looked forward to going to her house and getting the bubblegum machine out of the, the closet and putting a quarter in. There's no recollection of that relationship anymore. This person was hurting. And while I was hurt by the response of, like, you can never know what I'm going through, I had to recognize and leave them to the Lord and say, Lord, you know what they're going through. They're suffering. Trust in Brothers and sisters, we may not know our exact experiences, but we've all suffered. And what we need to do is not put each other into the exact cube that is our particular suffering and circumstance, but to recognize that there is a gift that comes from God in relating to one another. As we rub shoulders together, God enables us so that other people who are going through life in similar circumstances with maybe just a different angle, can come alongside of us to be supports and encouragements to us. I've talked with a few people who have been caring for older family members in the church body. And while I, I, I can't imagine being in their particular shoes, I've been encouraged as I've just shared stories of how God has been with people who have gone through that same struggle to see their encouragement. So friends, don't neglect, don't run away from the people that God has put in front of you because often their circumstances are just like yours, just a little different. In fact, when we have that kind of view, I would say that it's a gross misconception and a low view of how God works within the body of Christ. We must see that in the community of faith that we have as followers of Jesus, that God works through others for our good. So let's not live according to the sinful tendency of running away, but rather let's Run to the Lord in our affliction. Don't forsake what God has given you. Don't forsake God's people. The second idea that I want to proclaim to you this morning, based on this argument, is as we are facing affliction, we do indeed need to run to the Lord. Look at verse 6. Naomi, who has been the center of this tragedy, now I just want to remind you, in the Old Testament, when somebody's husband died, that meant that they were left destitute. They had no protection, no provision, and they had no legacy to leave. And not only for Naomi did she miss her husband, she no longer had her children. So everybody that was part of her family line, her family line, in essence, just went extinct. In verse 6, we come to her now, the focus of this story where it tells us 
she and her daughter-in-law set out to return from the, Mo- the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing them food. Okay, so short little text, text note here for you guys. Verses 1 through 5, there's a famine in Bethlehem. So Elimelech and his family go to Moab. Verse 6, Naomi hears report that things have changed in Bethlehem. And not only have they changed, but the Lord has showed his kindness to his people, and he has provided what was once an empty house of bread now is full again. And so what do they do? They pack up and they go. She left the place where she had been living, verse 7, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. And in this traveling, verse 8 tells us that she says to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. She's telling them, go back from where you came from because what I have to give you is nothing. In fact, she brings this into an illustration where she goes on to say that she hopes that the Lord would show them kindness just as they have shown kindness to her dead children and herself, who she considers to be dead because of her circumstances. And they weep loudly together and they say to her, Naomi, we can't leave you. We want to be with you. But Naomi's response is, return home. Go back to where you came from because I don't want you to experience the affliction that I am going through. The Lord has turned his hand against me. So within this section, that that phrase is extremely important. The Lord, in verse 13, his hand has turned against me. Naomi is seeing her circumstances as God's judgment for what had happened in her family. What she was facing was connected to how Elimelech and Malon and Kilion had disobeyed God's clear commands. And so she doesn't want them to see this kind of bitterness, this kind of affliction. And in verse 14, it tells us again that they weep loudly, and there's two different examples of what happens. Orpah She goes on and returns back to her homeland. But Naomi clings to her mother-in-law. And she makes this declaration that we see in verses 16 and 17. Don't plead with me to abandon you or return with me to follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do, severe, do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. She makes a vow before God with Naomi and says, Nothing but death can separate us. And what's kind of funny about this is if you read verse 18 real quick, it says, Naomi saw that Ruth was determined and she stopped talking to her. (laughs) It's like, here comes this stubborn Ruth having this conversation. I am not changing her mind. This is the third appeal, right? She's given them an opportunity. I mean, right at verse 6, right at the beginning, Orpah and Ruth could have left. They could have left, and they didn't. They stayed by her side. And she said, we're traveling, we're going back to Judah, we're going to go to where God has provided in his kindness for his people. We're going to, we're going to go there because we're hungry. We need, we need food. And they say, okay, we're going with you. And she goes, no, 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 go back. I can't provide for you 
a family. I can't provide for you protection. I can't provide for you your financial means. I can't even give you a legacy because if I was to marry and then have children, you'd have to wait even into your old age. It's not worth it. Go back. And Ruth goes, I'm not going anywhere. And so Naomi stops trying to convince Ruth to go to another place. We learn two things. One, that Naomi's response by returning to the land of Judah was good. That was a good thing that she did. She returned. She ran back to God. She ran back to the place where God's people were, where his presence was with them, and he blessed them. Now, the circumstances of their blessing, right, they had changed, right? The land had a famine, and now there was no longer a famine. How does God respond to his people? He judges us for our sin, but when we respond in repentance, God then provides for his people, and he does so with kindness and abundance. And so Naomi returns back, and that's a good lesson for us, that when going gets hard, we need to turn back to God. We don't need to run from him, we need to run to him. And often what that running to him looks like is repentance for our sin. By looking at every angle of our lives and saying, in the mirror first, God, I could be the source of the problem here. I could be in the wrong. Would you forgive me for my wrongdoing and help me to trust in you? So we learn that we should run back to God, that we should run to him, we should run to him in repentance. But we also learn something from Ruth, that there's something to be admired for an unwavering confidence and commitment to God and his people. I mean, I think she was probably being stubborn here. I don't think that she was being perfectly holy in her admonition and her vow that she made. I think there was some emotion that was involved in this that may not have been the right motives. And I think what she she declared before God and to Naomi was bold. That's quite the thing to proclaim. To say, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. In marriage... A husband and wife make a lifelong commitment to one another in which we say, till death do us part, we will live according to the vows we have made to one another before God. Now that's between a husband and a wife. And God declares to us that nothing should separate what God makes in marriage. But Ruth is not married to Naomi. Right? Like we would, we would say that that's not a biblical marriage, right? Right? That would be a, a non-biblical marriage. Oh, a woman cannot marry a woman according to the Bible. Marriage exists for a man and a woman in a lifelong covenantal relationship. Okay? But the, the vow she makes is a vow that's serious enough to her death. So she's extremely committed to Naomi. And now that she's made this vow before God, she has to live with it or else follow the consequences and we learned that disobedience to your covenantal commitment before God does not end well. It didn't end well for Elimelech, or Malon, or Kilion. It ended in their death. So what she was putting upon herself 
was very serious, but also admirable. She was convinced. She, not only did she align herself with Naomi, I think it's extremely important that we see that it says, your God will be my God. She was aligning herself with Yahweh. She was saying no to the gods of the Moabites and saying, I will live for the glory of the God of Israel, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Provider, the Creator. So friends, when we vow to live for God's purposes with his people, we should take it with seriousness. They had a covenantal relationship, Ruth and Naomi. Our church members make a covenantal relationship to one another. When we become members of the church, we have what's called a church covenant. It was a document that was written that basically teaches us how we can live together according to Scripture for God's glory. Friends, when you're a member of a church, when you say that you're going to submit yourself to the life and observation and activity of a particular gathering of Christians for the glory of God, you need to recognize that that's a covenantal commitment that is serious. Being involved in the local church is one of the greatest gifts that we have in life. And as we do that, we're not just, the church is not an organization where we just get to kind of like get up and go to the next one because we don't have, we, we have some sort of issue with what's going on here. When we covenant together, part of our church covenant particularly tells us that we will exercise a brotherly affection for one another. And that brotherly affection includes things like submitting to the discipline of the church body for our sinfulness, allowing others to speak into our lives and say, this is what's glorifying to God and this is what's not glorifying to God in a mutually beneficial relationship. It's not in just the sense where they get to tell us how to live, but how we get to relate with them and say, this is what God's word says. Let's live according to it. That's a serious covenant that we make to one another. We're reminded of it when we gather together for meetings, when we gather together and bring in new members like we will be doing next week. Praise God, bringing in new people to be part of our church family. But it's a covenantal relationship. We're saying, I belong to you, you belong to me. And Drew Holcomb and the neighbors would say, you're my sweetheart. (laughs) Drew Holcomb sings the song too. I know, I know. It's good. But nonetheless, we belong to one another. If we belong to one another, we need to care for one another. We need to run to the Lord in our affliction. Turn from our sin and run to the Lord. And finally, I think we need to see the example of caring for others in their affliction. That comes from 19 through 22. The two of them traveled. They came to Bethlehem. And when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Do you guys know what Naomi means in Hebrew? Naomi means the one with pleasant joy. And so Naomi responds with, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. That's what the word Mara means. The Almighty has made me bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabites. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
Ruth and Naomi go back, and the people are excited to see her. It's like seeing a long-lost family member come back. They're rejoicing, saying, here's the one that is supposed to exude the pleasant joy of God. She's come back. We can't wait to hear what her story is. And she enters in and proclaims what has happened in her life. She says, the Almighty has made me bitter. Church, there's something to learn about caring for people here. Now, we could respond. Let's put ourselves in this situation, right? Have you encountered a fellow church member, a fellow Christian, who you've been joyful to see come through the door of the church building to gather together for worship, and you've greeted them with immense joy and said, I'm so happy to see you, and they respond with, I am not well. Have you been there? Maybe I'm the only one. (laughs) No, I think we've all been in that kind of situation where we've talked to somebody and said, hey, how are you doing? And they respond with, things are not good. Our natural inclination in those situations is to go, well, this is awkward. I'm going to run, right? And that's what these women could have done. They could have just said, nope, don't want to hear it. But I want to commend Naomi for how she approached these women. She didn't come in saying, hey, everything's all good. My my husband's dead and my two sons are dead. She came in and said, the Lord's afflicted me. I'm in immense pain. I'm in immense sorrow. She didn't put on the mask as she walked through the door on Sunday morning. She came right out and said, I'm having a hard time. Friends, we need to be that kind of transparent and honest with one another, that when things are going hard, it's not just like, I'm okay, it could be better. No, it's hard. That's how we can relate to one another. We should be honest when we're going through circumstances. But how should we also care for others in light of what we see in this interaction? I think it comes from the New Testament, specifically Galatians 6, 1 and 2, where it tells us that if anyone is going through suffering, that we're to bear the burden with them. A biblical response to those that are suffering is one in which we come around them, we put our shoulder out for them to cry on, we wrap our arm around them, maybe they're even weak enough that they can't stand, we're helping support them so that they can stand together. It's entering into the affliction of others. Now, it's not coming in and saying, I know exactly what you're going through exactly the same way with all the same experiences. It is coming and saying, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. The Lord is with you, and I love you in Christ. This is hard. You know, I I have to say, being a pastor, one of the things that happens in my life, when people die, and I do funerals, I've done probably close to 20 funerals in five years that I've been here. It's It's been more than I thought. Um... After you get the call, your initial response is, wow, this family is really hurting. But I can go into business mode where I'm like, I have to put together a service. I've got to write a sermon. I've got to do these things. The best advice I ever got about funerals, by the way, was to run to them. To run to them as gospel opportunities, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That was really great wisdom. But there was a long time where it felt like I could become numb to the fact of death because there was a familiarity with death and being a pastor. 
I shared a prayer request with you guys for my, my friend Nate. That was the first time in a long time that death really hit me. His brother Andrew struggled with substance addiction. He died at 28. And I got a text on Thursday asking me to pray for his family because his brother had passed away. And that's when death did its ugly thing of just hitting me right in the forehead. I called my brother up and I said, how are you? And he just sobbed. And that's all I could do with him. Just sob with him. Say, I'm here. I'm sorry. I love you. Christ sees your suffering. He's with you. I didn't know what to say. I couldn't tell him that it was going to be okay. I couldn't tell his five kids that they would be all right not seeing their uncle again. I couldn't tell him that that was the way to go. As far as I know, he got on a bus. He traveled into Hartford. His brother talked to him on the phone, and 25 minutes later, he was dead. That was the tragedy of his story. But what God taught me in that moment was to enter into that with him. Did not put on the the pastor's professional face and just act like everything was going to be okay. We could have hope in the Lord. It was to cry with my brother. Friends, that's what affliction looks like together. Not just saying cliche things like the Lord's got you and it's going to be okay. We know that that's true. We do indeed Proclaim Romans 8 is indeed true that God will work all things together for the good of those that love him. But we need to enter into it together. That's what bearing each other's burdens looks like. You may not know, and it's okay not to know, but love your brother or sister enough to be there, to feel with them, to embrace that, to help them to have hope beyond their circumstances by saying things like, Yeah, I know this is hard, but God is with you. Remember his word. Don't just say things that you think you know. Say the word to them. So he asked me, would you pray Psalm 34 with me right now? And I did, and I'm just going to open it up for you because I think it's profound. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I'll boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack no food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack anything good. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord who is someone who desires life, longing a life to enjoy what is good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. Brothers and sisters, run to the Lord in your affliction. Care for each other. Enter into the life circumstances that you're facing. If you're in financial need, don't hesitate to ask for help. If you need someone to come by and be with your kids, don't hesitate to ask for help. If you are struggling and you feel like you have no more hope, don't wait to ask somebody to pray with you. If you're going through something and you feel like you're all alone, reach out to your church family and remember we're here with you in Christ. If you're facing it, God is with you. Let Psalm 34 be your cry. For the Lord hears the cry of the righteous. He sees and he delivers. Life may be hard, but we can trust the Lord in our affliction. Let's run to him. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you see all of what we are facing in life. That you know just what we need when we need it. And I ask, Father, that you would now work in our hearts to pray for one another, to be there, to enter into these situations, to bear each other's burdens, to see your deliverance, your completed work in Christ, to hope in him alone, for your glory. Amen. <clears throat> One of the ways we can live this out together is by praying for each other. What I want to encourage you to do in the next few moments is going to give you three or four minutes together. Gather with the people that are sitting around you. <clears throat>